2: Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to the 290th episode of our Civil
0: War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, it was the morning of May 12th, 1863, and McPherson's 17th Corps, as the right wing of Grant's army, was marching toward the town of Raymond.
2: Shortly before 10 o'clock that morning, just southwest of Raymond, Federal infantry from Major General John Logan's division topped a ridge and moved into the valley of Fourteen Mile Creek. Suddenly, artillery and musket fire lashed out at the Yankees from the woods lining the nearly dry stream bed. Logan's Federals had run into Brigadier General John Gregg's Confederates, and the opening shots of the Battle of Raymond had just been fired.
0: As y'all recall, the Confederate commander John Pemberton had ordered Gregg to march from Jackson, the state capital, to Raymond, and, with his single brigade of 3,000 men, strike the Federals in the flank or rear as they moved past, heading north toward the railroad.
2: Of course, while Pemberton expected Greg to strike that blow at the enemy, Pemberton himself would stay safely behind the Big Black River off to the west with his main force of about 38,000 men. Uh, yeah, okay. In any case, soon after arriving in Raymond, Greg learned that the enemy was approaching. Eager to hit the Yankees, he decided to attack. Here's the thing, though. Greg didn't know the enemy force approaching Raymond was actually the vanguard of the entire Federal 17th Corps, which was about 10,000 strong.
0: And so, not knowing that his 3,000 Confederates were outnumbered better than 3 to 1 by the approaching Federals, Greg formed a line of battle on the outskirts of town and opened the fight.
2: The initial blast of Confederate artillery and musket fire caught Logan's Federals by surprise, and the Union advance came to an abrupt halt. After stopping the Yankees in their tracks, Gregg's rebels emerged from the woods, making an an an-echelon attack.
0: If you've been around the podcast a while, you know that making an an an-echelon attack means that not all of the attacking units step off at the same time. But instead, one unit will move forward, then after that first unit is engaged with the enemy, the next unit in line will start its attack, then the next unit will move forward, and so on, so that the assault develops in stages, putting more and more pressure on the enemy.
2: Exactly. And here, Greg's rebels emerged from the woods, attacking an echelon from right to left, and pushing across the way with their advance already discombobulated by the initial blast of rebel fire, Logan's men were now caught off guard by the unexpected Confederate attack. In places, Federal units wavered and broke.
0: But Logan rode forward and, quote, unquote, with the shriek of an eagle...
2: With the shriek of an eagle, whatever that means...
0: At any rate, Logan rode forward and by his inspirational leadership stopped the panic in the units where it occurred and turned the men back toward the enemy.
2: As the action heated up, dust and smoke obscured the battlefield and neither commander could accurately gauge the size of the force he was confronting. The ferocity of the Confederate assault meant the inexperienced McPherson simply concentrated on reacting to the enemy's attack rather than using his superior numbers to control the battle.
0: Although surprise and the ferocity of their attack meant the Confederates enjoyed initial success, Federal resistance gradually began to stiffen. As more and more Union troops came up to the scene of the fighting, Gregg finally realized that he had bitten off more than he could chew.
2: More and more Federal brigades continued to arrive at the battlefield, Deploying into line of battle on either side of the road. Several batteries dropped trail on the high ground south of 14 Mile Creek and roared into action. By early afternoon the rebel advance ground to a halt and the Yankees counterattacked, but in piecemeal fashion rather than in a coordinated effort. Nevertheless, the Federals pushed forward and drove the rebels back across the creek.
0: The clash at Raymond was unusually confused because visibility was a problem due to the presence of dense thickets along the stream and billows of smoke that failed to disperse but just hung in the unusually still air.
2: Raymond has rightly been called a soldier's battle because regimental and company officers directed the ebb and flow of the fighting more so than the general officers. But eventually, federal superiority in numbers prevailed, and the Confederate line began to buckle. Under tremendous pressure, the near the road finally collapsed, and Gregg had no choice but to withdraw.
0: In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, the Struggle for the Mississippi River, William Shea and Terrence Winchell write, As the Confederates retreated through the tree-shaded streets of Raymond with the Federals close behind, they were unable to partake of a feast prepared for them by the citizens in anticipation of a victory. Rather, much to the townspeople's chagrin, Union soldiers with voracious appetites halted their pursuit and quickly consumed everything in sight. With the federal aid, the weary Confederates escaped to the northeast and bivouacked for the night along Snake Creek. The following day they returned to Jackson— McPherson's troops bedded down in and around Raymond.
2: The fight at Raymond cost the Confederates 73 killed, 252 wounded, and 190 missing, most of whom were from the 3rd Tennessee and 7th Texas. Meanwhile, in his first engagement as a Corps commander, McPherson lost 446 men, 68 killed, 341 wounded, and 37 missing.
0: In his official report, McPherson doubled the size of the rebel force, probably because he was embarrassed by the fact Gregg, with a lone brigade, had halted the Federal advance and held off an entire corps in the early stages of the battle.
2: Although a relatively minor engagement by Civil War standards, Raymond had a profound effect on the Vicksburg campaign because it led Grant to change the direction of his advance. You see, after receiving McPherson's exaggerated report of the Confederates' strength, Grant was reluctant to leave what he thought was a sizable enemy force in his rear. And so, instead of wheeling north toward the Southern Railroad with his entire army, as originally planned, he decided to continue marching northeast, driving Gregg before him. This movement would bring the Army of the Tennessee within striking distance of the Southern Railroad near Jackson, which besides being the Mississippi State Capitol, was also an important rail junction.
0: Grant was uncertain whether the inexperienced McPherson was up to the task of capturing Jackson, so he sent the 17th Corps north from Raymond to Clinton on May 13th, and turned Sherman's Corps northeast through Raymond to Mississippi Springs. In other words, the 15th and 17th Corps changed places.
2: McPherson and Sherman would converge on Jackson from the northwest and southwest, respectively. To cover the movement on Jackson, and fend off any aggressive moves by Pemberton from the west, Grant moved McClernand's Corps away from the Big Black River and into a defensive position between Raymond and Clinton. These developments took the Federals deeper into the interior of Mississippi than originally intended, and while some in the Army found this slightly alarming, Grant remained confident.
0: Late in the afternoon of May thirteenth, as Sherman's and McPherson's Corps converged on Jackson from two directions, a train arrived in the state capitol bringing a new player onto the scene, Confederate General Joseph Johnston. He had been ordered to Jackson by Jefferson Davis, who expected Johnston to take charge and salvage the deteriorating situation in Mississippi.
2: Instead, when Johnston was briefed on federal moves on available Confederate troop strength and the condition of local fortifications, he concluded with unseemly haste that all was lost and wired Richmond, saying, I am too late. I am too late. That's what he said, Tracy.
0: Yes. Well, rather than fighting for Jackson... Joe Johnston threw his hands up in the air in despair, so to speak, and ordered all Confederate military personnel to evacuate the city. He directed the luckless Gregg to cover the withdrawal, then boarded a train and departed for Canton, 25 miles to the north.
2: The military evacuation was preceded by a civilian exodus. That started when, a short time earlier... Governor John Pettus had moved the seat of government down to Enterprise, near the Alabama state line.
0: As y'all may recall, the previous December, Johnston and Jefferson Davis had visited Mississippi. While at Vicksburg, the Confederate president had been impressed by the defenses he saw. In fact, he considered Vicksburg's fortifications too formidable to be taken by assault.
2: However, in his memoirs, Johnston claimed to have warned Davis that Vicksburg's extensive earthworks were an elaborate trap, and that if Pemberton should become besieged within those fortifications, then Vicksburg was as good as gone. Whether Johnston actually made such a prediction at the time is unknown, but from the moment he arrived in Jackson, there's no question he acted as if the outcome of the campaign had already been decided.
0: A much-needed heavy rain fell on central Mississippi during the night of May 13th. Advancing slowly under cloudy skies the next morning, Sherman and McPherson approached Jackson.
2: For the second time in two days, John Gregg found himself in an impossible situation, confronting an unstoppable foe. He concentrated his meager strength northwest of the city and prepared to delay McPherson's corps as long as possible. Gregg either didn't know Sherman's corps was approaching from the southwest or rode off the approach of Federals from that direction as a diversion.
0: Around nine o'clock on the morning of May 14th, the leading elements of McPherson's Corps came under artillery fire as they approached Jackson from the northwest. McPherson deployed his men into line of battle and prepared to attack. McPherson delayed the assault until a passing rain shower had ended, but then the Federals surged forward and forced the Confederates back into the Jackson fortifications, a mile to their rear.
2: The fighting was brief but intense, and there were numerous casualties on both sides. After pausing to reform their lines, the Federals approached the rebel earthworks, only to discover they were empty. The enemy was gone.
0: Meanwhile, Sherman's troops had an easier time of it. The 15th Corps' advance reached Lynch Creek, southwest of Jackson, about the same time that McPherson's men went into action several miles to the north.
2: Sherman's troops advanced toward the Confederate earthworks until they encountered sporadic artillery fire. Sherman then sent the 95th Ohio off to the east in search of a weak spot in the rebel defenses. After stumbling through a patch of thick woods, the Ohioans turned north along the tracks of the New Orleans, Jackson, and Great Northern Railroad and cautiously approached the enemy earthworks.
0: The Federals were greatly relieved to find the rebel fortifications empty. An elderly black man came up and told them the Confederates were gone, that they'd withdrawn from the city but the Ohioans could still hear cannon firing nearby, so were hesitant to believe the man until he laughed and assured them it was only a few rebel artillerymen who had stayed behind to delay the Union advance.
2: Sure enough, as the Ohioans swept forward down the line of enemy earthworks, they discovered only a handful of Mississippi State troops and civilian volunteers manning the guns in Sherman's front.
0: By that time, Greg and his sadly battered brigade, along with stragglers from other rebel units and a pathetic stream of civilians, were well out on the Canton Road heading north when McPherson's and Sherman's troops entered Jackson from two directions around three o'clock that afternoon.
2: Soldiers from McPherson's Corps made their way to the center of town and unfurled the Stars and Stripes atop the Mississippi State Capitol. Thousands of Union soldiers cheered at the sight and tossed their hats into the air in celebration. After Nashville, Tennessee, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Jackson was the third Confederate state capital to fall into Federal hands. In the short but intense clash on May 14th, the Federals lost 300 men, 42 killed, 251 wounded, and 7 missing the great majority of the casualties being from McPherson's Corps. Confederate losses were estimated at about 845 men in total, killed, wounded, and missing. The Federals also captured 17 pieces of artillery and a substantial amount of military supplies and equipment. Grant rode into Jackson in the wake of his victorious, mud-splattered soldiers. He didn't intend to stay long in the city but did want it neutralized for military purposes. And so, during two days of destruction, Union troops tore up railroad tracks, cut telegraph wires, seized whatever supplies and equipment they could carry, and burned all facilities that supported the Confederate war effort.
0: When Grant and Sherman visited a textile mill rolling out canvas cloth stamped "C.S.A." Grant suggested that enough work had been done at the factory. Sherman permitted the female employees to take all the cloth they could carry and then ordered the place burned to the ground.
2: Then, with much of Jackson in flames and Joe Johnston withdrawing off to the north, Ulysses S. Grant turned his army west toward Vicksburg.
1: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
0: During the two weeks that followed Grant's crossing of the Mississippi River, the Confederate commander John Pemberton had evacuated Grenada to the north along the Mississippi Central Railroad and also Fort Pemberton in the Yazoo Pass bottomlands, as well as Grand Gulf to the south. He had also enlarged the stockpiles of rations and ammunition inside the Vicksburg defenses.
2: But while preparing for the worst, Pemberton wasn't yet resigned to a siege. In fact, he sought an opportunity to duplicate the Confederate defensive victory of the previous December at Chickasaw Bayou. Here, the most promising place to make a stand outside Vicksburg was the high ground on the west side of the Big Black River. There the Confederates could dig in and repel Grant's attacks, which would open up the opportunity for the rebels to counterattack and take advantage of the fact the Yankee army was far from its supplies and a long way from the support of the Union gunboats on the Mississippi.
0: But Pemberton's ability to carry out this plan, or any other plan, was severely hampered by his lack of support from his principal lieutenants. Many of his generals disliked and even distrusted their Pennsylvania-born commander. Most were annoyed by his commitment to the defensive and his lack of initiative.
2: Acutely aware of the feelings of his subordinates, Pemberton dealt with the situation by repeatedly convening councils of war to determine what course of action his officers would support. A defensive stand along the Big Black was tactically sound, but the generals were tired of being cooped up behind earthworks. Eager to engage the enemy on the field of battle, they recommended the Vicksburg Army advance across the Big Black River and strike the Yankees. A stand-up fight with Grant's army was the last thing Pemberton wanted, but lacking confidence in his own judgment, he yielded to the wishes of his more aggressive subordinates. On May twelfth, the day of the Battle of Raymond between Gregg's Confederates and McPherson's Federals, Pemberton issued a message to his troops in which he announced, quote, The hour of trial has come. Then, appealing to duty, honor, and love of family, Pemberton sought to motivate his men, saying, quote, "'Soldiers, be vigilant, brave, and active. Let there be no cowards, nor laggards, nor stragglers from the ranks, and the god of battle will certainly crown our efforts with success.'"
0: No doubt suitably inspired to perform great deeds by this proclamation, the soldiers in Butternut and Gray shouldered their muskets and set out across the Big Black toward Edwards Station, which was on the railroad midway between Vicksburg and Jackson.
2: Pemberton, however, clearly didn't have his heart in the forward movement. He left two of his five divisions behind in the Vicksburg defenses and marched to meet Grant with just three divisions, or about 22,000 men. That meant, in the fight to come, Pemberton would be outnumbered roughly three to two by Grant's army. Needless to say, with the fate of Vicksburg at stake, the thousands of Confederate troops left behind, sitting on their hands inside the city's fortifications, might have made the difference between victory and defeat for John Pemberton if he would have had the moral courage to bring his whole force out to challenge Grant.
0: On May 14th, a courier reached Pemberton and handed him a message from Joe Johnston. It had been composed the previous day, only hours after Johnston had arrived in Jackson.
2: Johnston informed Pemberton that the Federals had reached the Southern Railroad at Clinton, ten miles west of the state capital.
0: The enemy force in question was McPherson's Corps.
2: Yep, but Johnston then directed Pemberton to cooperate with him in crushing the Yankees between their two converging Confederate forces. Curiously, though, Johnston failed to mention that he had already reached the conclusion that all was lost, as he wired to Richmond, and he was about to abandon Jackson to the enemy without a fight, and withdraw northward, thus taking him away from Pemberton, and thereby unable to participate in any coordinated attack meant to squeeze the Yankees at Clinton or anywhere else. And so why Johnston would have even sent this message to Pemberton, and proposed this course of action, is a mystery.
0: In any case, by the time Pemberton received the message, Jackson was in federal hands and Johnston was retreating northward. But, of course, Pemberton didn't know any of this, so he dutifully replied to Johnston, saying, I move at once with whole available force.
2: By which he meant the three divisions at hand, minus the two he'd left sitting back at Vicksburg. In any case, Pemberton pointed out that after months of garrison duty, his troops weren't used to hard campaigning in the field, and that, quote, The men have been marching several days, are much fatigued, and I fear will straggle very much. Pemberton also made it clear that if Johnston, a senior officer, assumed command of their combined forces, then Johnston naturally would also assume responsibility for the fate of Vicksburg as well. He told Johnston, quote, In directing this move, I do not think you fully comprehend the position that Vicksburg will be left in. But I comply at once with your orders.
0: So to sum up, Pemberton had marched three divisions out from behind the Big Black and headed for Edwards Station, even though he thought it was a bad idea, because he lacked the resolve to stand up to his more aggressive subordinates.
2: And now he'd received a message from his superior, Joe Johnston, saying the two of them should move in from two directions to strike the Yankees who had cut the railroad between Vicksburg and Jackson. Pemberton obviously thought this was also a bad idea, but he said he'd comply with Johnston's instructions.
0: And to top it all off, unknown to Pemberton, Johnston was in reality hightailing it north after giving up Jackson.
2: Once he reached Edward Station, however, Pemberton's doubts had obviously got the better of him because he halted the army's advance and called another council of war. After reading Johnston's message to his generals, Pemberton expressed his misgivings about the projected operation and reminded everyone that, quote, the leading and great duty of the army was to defend Vicksburg. In other words, Pemberton wanted to return to the west side of the Big Black, where the troops could entrench and await Grant's attack, which, by the way, is what Pemberton had wanted to do in the first place. However, Pemberton's subordinates favored Johnston's plan of attack, or any plan of attack, and urged Pemberton to press on, but he resisted. William Wing Loring, Pemberton's senior division commander, then stepped forward and offered an alternate plan. Rather than continue marching east toward Clinton and risk a head-on collision with Grant, which Pemberton obviously dreaded, Loring proposed that the army march southeast toward Raymond this would take them behind the advancing Federals and place the rebel army squarely astride Grant's line of supply and communication back to the Mississippi River. Well, by this time, Grant, after deciding to advance into the interior of the Magnolia State and feed his army off the countryside, actually didn't have a line of supply and communication in the usual sense of the term but the rebels didn't know this. So, at any rate, the Confederate Council of War voted in favor of Loring's proposal, and Pemberton reluctantly agreed. Having agreed, however reluctantly, to accept Loring's proposal and advance toward Raymond, Pemberton informed Johnston of the change in plans, explaining less than candidly that, upon reflection, he thought his force wasn't strong enough To join Johnston in the attack at Clinton. Upon receipt of this and other dispatches from Pemberton the following day, May 15th, Johnston reiterated his previous order for a coordinated joint attack against the Federals at Clinton. This is simply inexplicable, since Johnston himself had never and would never make any preparations himself for a move toward Clinton. This being the case, his repeated instructions to Pemberton to join him in an attack there are baffling. However, since Johnston clearly believed the loss of Vicksburg was inevitable, one explanation would be that Johnston wanted to make sure that if anyone was blamed for the loss of the place, it would be John Pemberton. The only result of this exchange of messages was that instead of uniting their forces or even coordinating their movements, Pemberton and Johnston drifted away from each other, both literally and figuratively, and Ulysses S. Grant was given free rein to maneuver as he wished. The Confederate troops at Edward Station were roused early on the morning of May 15th. As the shrill notes of Reveille faded, rebel soldiers were in motion, rolling their blankets, kindling fires, and preparing meager breakfasts. Before the army marched, though, a problem was discovered. The store of rations and munitions on hand was woefully inadequate to sustain the army as it moved, So after some confusion, a train of wagons was sent back to Vicksburg for additional supplies, which were then distributed among the thousands of men, and the remainder loaded onto 400 wagons. All of this took up a good part of the day. It wasn't until early afternoon that the army began to march away from Edwards Station on the Raymond Road, which because of the recent rains was a ribbon of mud through the Mississippi countryside. After a difficult march of two miles, the head of the column came to a halt on the bank of rain-swollen Baker's Creek. There the bridge had been washed away, but apparently no one at Pemberton's headquarters had thought to scout the proposed line of march, so no one knew there was a problem until the first troops arrived at the creek and found they couldn't get across it. Late in the afternoon, Confederate cavalry found another bridge a few miles upstream. And so the column trudged up the right side of the stream to the Jackson Road, the main thoroughfare between the state capital and Vicksburg, and there finally began to cross the creek. Two miles beyond the bridge, the troops reached a crossroads at the base of a rise called Champion Hill. There they turned southwest on the Ratliff Road, and after slogging down the west side of the stream for another two miles, they were back on the Raymond Road. The soldiers of Loring's division, which led the march, bivouacked on Sarah Ellison's plantation along the Raymond Road around sundown. Bowen's division, next in line, halted a few hours later along the Ratliff Road. Stevenson's division, last in line, didn't leave Edwards Station until late in the afternoon, and struggled through the mud and darkness until long after midnight. The 400 wagons hauling munitions and rations didn't arrive at the crossroads at the base of Champion Hill until dawn. Everyone was exhausted after the long and trying day. When orders to halt finally came, many rebel soldiers simply staggered off the road, sank to the ground, and were asleep within minutes. Here Pemberton's force was in open country, no longer safe in fortifications or behind rivers. Yet apparently neither the commanding general nor any of his subordinates gave much thought to the possibility that theirs might not be the only army in the vicinity. One exception was John Bowen, who noticed a faint glow on the eastern horizon that night and pondered what it meant. Just to be safe, he threw out pickets, placed his regiments in line, and readied his artillery, prior to letting the men of his division get some much-needed sleep. The glow that unsettled Bowen was caused by the campfires of Grant's Army of the Tennessee. In contrast to the Confederates, The Federals were well-rested and well-organized after a day of easy marching. By nightfall on May 15th, seven Union divisions, about 32,000 men, were camped on a line from Bolton to Raymond facing west toward Edwards Station. And so that night, although neither Ulysses S. Grant or John Pemberton knew it yet, the stage was already set for the climactic battle that would decide the fate of Vicksburg. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is Triumph and Defeat the Vicksburg Campaign by Terrence J. Winchell. Winchell, who was for many years the chief historian at the Vicksburg National Military Park, uses the ten essays in this book to cover every major aspect of the Vicksburg campaign, from the Federal's March down the Louisiana side of the Mississippi, to Grierson's Raid, to the Battle of Champion Hill, to the siege itself. Don't forget you can find a complete list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And then as we wrap up the show, we want to say thank you to Christopher and Bill for their donations this past week. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care.